Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is targeted towards both medical professionals as well as the general public, and particularly patients who have food allergies. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Douglas Mack to discuss a wide array of current food allergy information and perspective. Dr. Mack is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Mack is a member of the Board of Directors for the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and his research and clinical interests are focused on pediatric food allergy and anaphylaxis, particularly on education and practical approaches to management. Dr. Mack, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, I think this is going to be a great conversation. Totally. And as you know, as our listeners will hear, so much has changed just in our understanding mm-hmm. of food allergy. But before we get to some of the, the specifics and questions, Food Allergy Awareness Week is taking place between May 8th and May 14th this mm-hmm. year. And it's always in May every year. What does this week mean to you? Well, I, I think, Dave, traditionally, food allergy has had a bit of a low profile, I would say, in the medical field. And I think often there's an underestimation of some of the challenges faced by many of our patients and, and some of the dangers and, and, and some of the approaches. And I, and I think this week really, I hope, not only increases the awareness amongst the general population, but also um, amongst physicians so that they un- understand kind of what uh, what our patients go through and, and even considering challenges like the top 10 challenge where you know as a physician or as a as a, um, as a trainee i like to get our trainees to kind of pick a food and say you know if you had to live like a patient who had food allergy how would that feel and um, and and so we often will kind of do that and say what does my day look like when i'm trying to read labels so this is a tricky thing and and and, and i think food allergy has a burden that that is really quite substantial for our patients so this week actually i think is is um it's, it's great. It's, it's a great opportunity to educate our um, community. No, that's fantastic. I, I couldn't agree more. Educate the community, mm-hmm. support and advocate for our patients. Uh, there's just a lot that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And as part of our efforts to raise awareness, can you just give us some background regarding food allergies, including what are some of the more common food allergens, the types of symptoms that typically appear, and and really how they're diagnosed? Yeah, well, this is, I mean, at, at its at its core, you know, it, this is all of us should be able to tolerate the foods that we eat, um, and and food allergy is fundamentally an immune reaction uh, towards specific foods that really, once again, should be tolerated. So we, um, the reaction can be quite mild, but it could also be quite severe. And, and many patients and, and listeners may be familiar with anaphylaxis, where a patient may have difficulty breathing, may pass out, but many patients will include just simply hives, vomiting, et cetera. And, and, and it is an immune response, and that means we can test for it. Um, it also makes it a bit challenging for us to manage in the long term. But some of the foods that people often think about when they think about being able to react to foods would be foods like peanuts, um, milk, uh, wheat, 
eggs. Um, and, and our adult population, certainly shellfish, um, other fish as well, from fish, thin fish like cod or salmon, um, sesame seed, mustard, these are kind of emerging allergens as well. So these are foods that you're going to find in so many foods that we eat on a daily basis that for the food allergic individual, eating these foods can lead to, once again, a mild, moderate or severe life-threatening reaction. And I think that that's the challenge that all of our patients face is that that they they are faced with this and, and, and think about it, we eat how many times a day? You know, I think this is not something that is readily avoidable. We, we eat, it's a huge part of our culture. Um, and so the risk for reaction certainly is something that, that our patients feel on, on a regular basis. When you're talking to somebody who has concerns about a new food allergy, mm-hmm. um, it, are there parts of the history that you really focus in on, like the type totally. of food or reprodu- reproducible nature of symptoms? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So there are, once again, the foods that we mentioned are some of the more common ones. And I and I think that, you know, we often look for common allergens being a trigger. Um, the time course. So, for example, if somebody is eating um, a food and then, and then has a possible reaction eight hours later, I'm much less inclined to think that that was a reaction um, compared to somebody, for example, who had it ate a new food and reacted within five to 15, maybe half an hour. And I, so the time course is, I think, actually really, really important. And the, and, and the, and the generalizability, what I mean by that is, you know, in general, you know, uh, we see that patients don't develop 20 new food allergies at once, but they also don't have a part-time food allergy in general. So, you know, if somebody mm-hmm. is eating a food and, and, and they can eat it again, um, in a substantial quantity without reacting, well, chances are that that food is is not causing a reaction. So the time course of this is is very key. The reproducibility of it, and then the characteristics is you know is this a food that's likely to cause um, you know a food reaction? And I think all of those go into forming our diagnosis. They're never a hundred percent. I mean, there are some you know weird and wonderful foods that we see that with that you know certainly an allergist needs to deal with, no question. Um, but we always look for the common things um, initially and and look for patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So focusing on the history and, you know, the, the analogy I often use with patients is we, we do want to clarify what's an allergy versus symptoms for other reasons. And mm-hmm. I always talk about beans because they really are the magical fruit, right? <laughs> um, so <laughs> people they eat sure a lot of beans, <laughs> you, you may have more gas. It doesn't mean you're allergic to it. You absolutely no have symptoms from it. It's just normal part of digestion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our, so moving on to, you know, misdiagnosis, sure. are food allergies frequently misdiagnosed? And if so, why is that? Well, I think there's two sides to this. And I think you've kind of alluded to one of them is, you know, the digestibility, the the ability to break down the sugars um, in the food. So we have intolerances, no question. I mean, people have a hard time digesting milk. That is not a milk allergy. You know, that's called a lactose intolerance. And that's purely digestive. It is not an immune response. It is not life-threatening. The same thing happens with foods like beans and other types of foods. In fact, even wheat, you know, people often think about gluten intolerance as an absolutely celiac disease and other ones like this. But but even wheat has sugars that for many patients are, are hard to, do, to break down. And they often feel quite a bit better when they remove them from the diet. And and, and that is, you know, these are digestive intolerances. And, and I think that that's one side of it. So there's that kind of, you know, um, you know, almost watering it down to because these are, you know, people often think, well, I have a milk allergy too. Well, you don't have a milk allergy, even intolerance. And I think that that's, that can be difficult for our patients to kind of explain from a schooling perspective or restaurants. 
But then there's the other side. I think that where there is overdiagnosis, and, and I think that that's many, very challenging from my perspective. You know, and I think that that's come because of the widespread availability of what we call serum IgG or immunoglobulin G testing, kind of looking, you know, looking for your food intolerances. But even as us as clinicians, you know, we often will perform batteries of tests that that may not be. Uh, you know, terribly specific or terribly um, precise. And, and what I mean by that is, for example, if somebody has a reaction to milk or a reaction to peanut, sometimes what, what allergists or other clinicians will do is they'll order blood work or skin testing for 10 or 15 different foods when the history, as we've talked about, is so key. So, you know, hearing that history really helps me to focus. I mean, I don't like to test for foods that have never been eaten or that foods that have, not, you know, were not eaten or reacted to as part of that process. So, you know, trying to keep that accurate, you know, based on the history, limiting our testing, um, and then following that up with with further diagnostics. I mean, that's that to me is the key. So yes, I think that there's an overcall for kind of milder intolerances, but then there's also an overcall um, because we simply, unfortunately, have um, you know, our tests are not perfect, Dave, and you know this. I mean, I think that they are, these are probability tests. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, these are not severity tests, you know, these, and these are not yes or no's by any means. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think that in general, the bigger the test, the higher the probability that a patient has an allergy. But unfortunately, every food can have a different level of, of, of testing where we say, you know, a, a, an eight millimeter test for this food may be a bit different than for this food to predict how, how probable this is. But once again, at the end of the day, regardless of my blood work, regardless of my skin testing, what a patient tells me in that room is so key. And if I'm not listening and if I'm not kind of really teasing that out, I see misdiagnosis all the time. I'm probably, and I've definitely done it myself. I mean, I think this is just unfortunately part of the diagnostic uncertainty um, that exists. And, and, I, and I think, you know, we, we, should, we can also talk about, you know, food challenges and how do we utilize those. But in the end, you know, a food challenge is where you give a patient a food that they may or may not react to. That to me is in general, the gold standard test. That That's, that's you know, once again, what happens when you eat the food is far more important than what happens on my skin test or in my blood work. Mm, I think that's great advice. Uh, if I may, uh, we're just getting going here, but I'm going to put you on the spot early. And yeah, uh, if, if I gave you a billboard and yeah. you could put this billboard next to every major highway that sure. everybody would see, cause you know, they're going to drive past it. And regarding food allergy testing, yeah. What message, what message do you put on the billboard? You know, I would love just a big stop sign that says no, stop the food panel testing. I mean, I think that that includes, you know, food panel testing with IgG testing, immunoglobulin you know, G testing, but also what we do as well, where we kind of, just, like I said, where we come into the office and we test for 20 different foods. To me, that is not good medicine. And I think that that is, you know, that, 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 you know, that's a hard stand to take sometimes. And I think that this is something that has been done in the, in the past. And, and, and once again, I, I, this is how we were trained. I mean, you know, tw you know, 15 years ago, this is what we were doing. Um, but panel testing, once again, some of our tests, I mean, I can flip a coin and have better diagnostic accuracy, you know, in, in my office. Mm -hmm. And so our tests are, are good to a point. But I think in the past, the food panel kind of allowed us to say, well, just avoid that food, just avoid that food and just avoid that food. We'll test you again in two or three years and, and you know, and, and see where this goes. Well, the problem with this, Dave, I mean, you know, we've had so much data now suggesting that avoidance unnecessary avoidance of food that you can tolerate is actually harmful you know and i don't think we had that data 15 years ago you know and I, and I think it was okay to say avoid at that point now we want patients to avoid the foods they are allergic to but 
for the foods that they aren't, they really should not be avoiding these foods. And, and I think that unfortunately, a panel test where we test for 10 different foods and we get, you know, yeah, a little bit positive blood work, a little bit positive skin testing and the patients end up avoiding it. Well, that can itself lead to unnecessary avoidance and unnecessary development of allergy. And I've seen it in my clinic. And I, once again, I'm sure I've contributed to this as well. And I think that that's, that's a challenge. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, once again, avoidance is, it's kind of almost use it or lose it, you know, and I think that this is something that I, you know, talk to my families about. Yes, I understand that we tested for this or this has been tested for and it, and it did show a very weak positive test, but we need to make for sure for certain that you aren't allergic. And unfortunately, a panel test just really sets up this kind of expectation of, of multiple allergies in many scenarios. And that, and that for so many patients has just been a very, very harmful pattern. So yeah, stop the panel food testing is what I would say. Stop the panels. I like stop it. Stop the panels. Uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully that won't cause traffic accidents as people think that they actually <laughs> yeah, stop. stop right. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, all right. So you very eloquently discussed why we really don't want to, you know, misdiagnose and overdiagnose and remove food if we if we can avoid it. But when somebody does have a food allergy and they mm. do need to avoid a food, how do you help families learn self-management skills at that mm. initial consultation? Yeah, this is tricky. And I think probably not necessarily as well as I should be, to be honest with you, sometimes. I think that we always talk about what foods that they need to avoid, but but also kind of make sure we make a plan to introduce the other foods of concern. That, that's really very important. Uh, we always talk about an anaphylaxis action plan, kind of, you know, how to use your epinephrine auto injector. We have trainers that are in the office, which are nice and we have videos that parents can watch, et cetera. Um, and so that's, that's an important part, you know, what are this talking about what are the symptoms that we might see and how do we treat that you know and and with the number one um, medication being being epinephrine um I, I do like to use patient support groups uh, you know I, I we have a great one in canada called food allergy canada they provide a really balanced approach to um you know managing food allergy which i really like i mean i think that they they've put risk into a very nice perspective and so i really you know i i, I love those i know you have those down south as well um, once again, epinephrine auto injector training is important. And then for our kids who have multiple food allergies, you know, I love to use a, a pediatric dietitians. I think this is a, a resource that I think is, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more of these being used in the future. Um, we're trying to get some training programs to train our dietitian to be specifically um, um, well-versed in, in food allergy. And, and I know that this is something that some of our colleagues uh, in the States have been working really, really nicely on Karina Venture and, and Marion Grouch, et cetera. So these are, you know, these are people who are doing some really great work um, um, in the U.S. about trying to train our dietitians. But I think that educational component, is it's, it's, it's never you know, it's never satisfied in that first visit, you know, and I, and I think that often we will have families coming back with lots of questions and, and it just sinks in, you know, it sinks in with time and your perspective changes with time. And, I, and, you know, I'm always amazed by the fact that I'm sure I said this thing, because it's what I say all the time, but um, not everybody hears what you say. And, 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 and I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet, a lot of misinformation on the internet, you know, and I, and I think, so I try to tell them, you know, if you have questions, come back to me, ask me, email me, and I'm happy to answer them. Um, you know, the stuff on the internet, you have to be really, really, really careful. So I think those are some of the skills that I try to train, but it's an ongoing process, believe me. And as you know, I mean, this is not something that you can you can deal with in, in a, in a 15, you know, 15, half an hour discussion. I mean, it's it's an ongoing thing for sure. 
No, I really like a couple of aspects of what you pointed out of uh, one, it's, it's ongoing education. So mm-hmm. follow-up visits, being open to questions, two, multidisciplinary, involve your entire staff uh, to mm-hmm. help with education and training. And then three, give them resources because mm-hmm. after they leave our office, they they need information, they need support, yep. and we can provide them with vetted resources uh, so they can hopefully avoid the misinformation. Yep, and you know what totally. I didn't, I didn't hear you say, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear you say, uh, don't send your child to school. You can never go to a restaurant again. You'll, you know, totally. you don't get on airplanes, but you know, we have common questions. So how do you counsel families when they have concerns about accidental ingestion, casual mm-hmm. exposure, you know, contact with the skin? Uh, what, what do you talk to them about? Well, I, I hear, I hear this quite a bit. And I think that this is uh, you know, I, I hear people talking about, you know, airborne allergy or, or kind of um, contact allergy. Well, I mean, you know, as you know, Dave, I mean, the first thing we do, when we do a skin test, that is a contact exposure. You know, this is, you know, the skin mm-hmm. test that we do in the office is actually a contact allergy, you know, a you know, contact reaction. And so, you know, by definition, patients can have the good news is, and I think this is so, so, so important. And I think liberating for hopefully for so many families is that, severe reactions are are, are are really dependent on ingestion so eating these foods is the is the is the is the key here you know whether it touches their skin um you know that's 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 very unlikely to cause a reaction um but accidental exposure i think is one of the more challenging things for, you know by 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 eating it is one of the more challenging things and I, and i think listen Kids can can do really very well. Families can can develop amazing coping skills and, and strategies to help um, them to live a very very normal life. I mean, I think so many of my families can live you know nearly normal lives where they can travel, they can they go, their kids can go to school, they can have you know get together with families. But they it's they still have to maintain a level of education about kind of what the risks are. And, and then develop strategies for avoidance. So, for example, if they're going to a restaurant, um, they, you know, typically um, some families will pick very specific restaurants that they that they have a good communication with. They'll kind of talk to the chef. They're going to talk to the owner and say, "Look, my child has this. Is this something that you can accommodate for my child?" And 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 I think so many restaurants these days are are understanding that and they're making those allowances and they're kind of having those discussions. Many of them have, you know, the actually relevant allergens posted on their website or posted on on the menu. I've even seen this, you know, on the menu, you know, and, and so right, right underneath the, um, the food so that you can kind of say, have a really good educated dis- discussion about this. So, you know, I, I think preparation, I, I think for these families is key, but an understanding that being certainly being in, you know, being in a restaurant where there is that allergen is not, Simply being there is not going to lead to a reaction, and and I think that that's you know to, you know that is something that I, I I think is so important. We actually will even for families that are concerned about this, we actually will have them. Uh, there was a great study that out of Colorado that looked at an in office desensitization to food, and it wasn't oral desensitization. What they did is that for families that were concerned that simply being you know, near a jar of peanut butter was going to lead to a reaction. What we do, and we do this as well, is we have families come in and they will um, we'll, we'll put the peanut butter jar, you know, on the bed away from the child who's sitting on a chair. And then we'll kind of bring it to the desk and then we'll kind of open up the peanut butter jar and we can move it closer and closer. And even if they're willing, you know, apply it to the skin and, and kind of show them mm-hmm. that these are, that it, that you, you know, simply being in the vicinity of these foods is not going to lead to, um, you know, a significant reaction or any reaction at all. So I think that that is, you know, that's, that's a, that is a, a patient specific kind of thing that we'll consider, but I think it's really an important educational, um, 
and, and therapeutic, to be honest with you, um, um, technique for sure. I, I couldn't agree more. I have similar experiences. I, I started calling it exposure therapy yeah. uh, sometime last year of just, I'm exposing you to situations that have caused, you know, all this anxiety and concern. And I can, I can show you exactly what will happen, mm -hmm. which is more often than not, absolutely nothing. And I don't remember which one of our colleagues said this at a talk I, I attended years ago, but um, I thought it was very helpful of, you know, with anxiety mm -hmm. related to food allergies, there's a healthy level. If it, if it, reminds you to read labels every time, uh, to inquire about new ingredients, uh, to have your epinephrine with you at all times. That's a healthy level of anxiety, yep. but it can often unfortunately tip the scales and become very unhealthy if it, uh, you know, causes undue fear, uh, prevents you from participating in you know social engagements or dining out or things like that. So I think you summarize that very well. Totally well, agree with you. Moving on. It, moving on, a, a lot of what we're going to discuss during the rest of our conversation is going to offer some new perspective regarding multiple different aspects of food allergy management. How do you help families understand that the information you're providing today may differ from what was discussed just a few years ago? You sort of already alluded to this, but how do you mm -hmm. actually you know, tell families that things have changed? Yeah, honestly, I think that I that. Um... I think for myself, constantly, you know, I'll just say personally, we, we constantly are trying to read and learn as much as we can. And I, and I, one thing I love about medicine and one thing I hate about medicine is that there's always new data and, and, and I, and I, and change is difficult for us. You know, you and I know that trying to change even our colleagues' ideas as to, you know, how to approach certain problems and challenges can be challenging. Um, but we have to constantly have the humility to understand that, unfortunately, you know, we can only make the decisions based on the data that's there and, and, and be able to kind of look back and reflect and say, yeah, you know what, that was not the right advice. And, 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 I, and I, you know, I think the biggest example of that was, you know, a few years back when, when, when for years we had been telling families to avoid peanuts um, to prevent peanut allergy. And we then had the LEAP study, which definitively showed that early introduction in an infant was actually protective, you know, and if you, if you think about it, Dave, it was the, the, the intervention was simply doing the exact opposite of what our guidelines recommended at the time, you know, that, you know, that's, and I, and I think that is that we have to have that humility and I, we have to always be looking at that and we have to understand that that's going to unfortunately make some families um, feel a little bit insecure in, in our recommendations. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, I totally, I totally get that. Um, but there also is going to be, I think, some, some anger. I, I think that I have an, an upset and, 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 and emotion behind that. I have families who, you know, quite specifically followed that recommendation and, and, and it may have contributed. I, mean, I don't think it necessarily caught, but it may have contributed to um, the development of their child's allergy. So, you know, we have to take it and we have to say, you know what, we were wrong. Um, we, we continue to try to learn and we try to modify, but this is, but unfortunately what I recommend now, and, and, you know, to be frank with you in 10 years, maybe even a, a different discussion and, and the nuances of this, I think are just, we have to have the research. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's why food allergy awareness week is so important, you know, the, the getting, you know, getting funding for research and, and, and trying to, increase this exposure is is so key uh, because otherwise we're just left with you know what is your opinion what is your opinion i mean in the end it's if we don't have the data we can't make the recommendations do you think that a culture of fear has existed surrounding mm -hmm. food allergies and if so what has contributed to that yeah i mean that's, that's a really good question i think it actually speaks to good exactly what you're talking about before um you know the healthy anxiety and, and i think absolutely you know this is exactly if you talk to any counselor or psychologist there is always a healthy degree of anxiety that that is 
protective. You know, if, if I have a teenager who doesn't care about their food allergies and out, out is doing whatever they want to do and, and whatever, I mean, that that's, there's no anxiety, then that's actually harmful. Uh, you know, uh, but you're right. It, it can, um, it can be a little bit, unfortunately, um, extreme in some families and in some patients and even in some physicians. And I think that that, that natural protection that's in absolutely all of us, um, I think can contribute to that. And for example, you know, thinking that, 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 that a much, much smaller amount of food that, that, um, could contribute to a substantial reaction. Absolutely, it can, but the, the vast majority of patients will never ever see that. And I, and I think that, that there are, we are now have data about thresholds where you say that, what is the threshold for this patient? You know, how much can they actually eat? And um, not everybody is the same. And, and, and I think that there are certainly some extremely severe patients out there. Um, but in general, um, trying to talk about the reality of what this actually looks like um i think is is our job in trying to put that into context and help families understand that and i i will tell you i i use a food allergy counselor routinely in my practice and, and i think that that's somebody you know there you can get counselors psychologists whatever but i think somebody who is well versed in understanding food allergy is is invaluable in my practice and i'm sure you know um in yours but the problem is there's just not that many of them and i think that that's one of our mm -hmm. you know I, once again Let's make this more aware and get people to do this. I noticed throughout the pandemic that this concept of risk uh, mm. really is is difficult for a lot of people Very to difficult. understand and communicate. And it made me think of food allergies. Mm -hmm. uh, do you totally. do you feel that you know we've done a, a relatively poor job communicating and understanding mm -hmm. risk to to patients and families, and that they in turn have uh, also don't really understand risk associated with various scenarios? Do you think that's part of it as well? No question. I think this is the same way and literally every disease. And I think that with food allergies, no exception. And I, and it's challenging, you know, when you look at the actual data, what is the risk of uh, fatal anaphylaxis? You know, maybe around the same risk as getting struck by lightning, you know, and I think that that, that is, you know, that's, that's a kind of a concept that we can put out there, you know, uh, you know, telling that patient that was struck by lightning <laughs> that, that, mm -hmm. you know, that it wasn't risky being out on the golf course at that time, you know, that's, but, and the same thing applies for food allergy. The, the families often will say, well, what if my child is that one in a million or one in a hundred thousand or whatever else, you know? And I think that that is, that's always at the back of this, but I think that the discussion about what is, what is the actual risk, what is the per perceived risk? And when I talk to families, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that the perception of risk, if I were to, if you were to look, ask families, you know, what, how many think that their child will have a fatal anaphylaxis, it's far higher than what the actual risk is. And, and that's, and our job is never to say that your, your, your views are not valid, you know, or that this is not a, I understand why you think that, but let's just talk about what this really can look like. And then more important, let's talk about strategies to, to reduce that risk and, and, and mitigate those factors. There's, there's, a, there's never a, a zero risk, um, 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 scenario. And in fact, you know, I, I, I often talk about risk stratification as if you're driving on the highway, uh, you know, 150 kilometers or what is that in miles, like 90 miles an hour. Um, you know, that's a far riskier endeavor than than driving at 50 miles an hour or, you know, 100 kilometers an hour. You know, and, and we do this, you know, we may go, I, I don't go 150, but, you know, I may go, um, you know, 10 kilometers over the limit. Um, you know, some people would say that that's too risky. Some people should say um, that I should go a little bit slower, but, but whatever. The reality is we all stratify our risk. We all stratify kind of what we consider an acceptable risk. It doesn't matter what's 
scenario this is in, and and food allergy is 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 no exception to that. We have to be prepared. We have to talk about the risk, and I'm more than happy to talk about that with our families. Oh, I think that's great. Uh, are you a baseball fan? Dr. Yeah, I love the Jays. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. So yeah, Toronto Blue Jays. They they yep. uh, play professional baseball relatively yep. close to where you Absolutely. are. Absolutely. I noticed that they promote allergy friendly games where mm-hmm. uh, peanuts aren't served or they have special sections without That's nuts. True. Is this medically necessary to keep people with peanut allergies safe while attending a baseball game? Like, do we need to tell people unless they are not serving peanuts, you can't go watch the Jays play or no, I, I, it's, it's not medically necessary. And we have so much, so uh, loads of data now to show kind of what, you know, how far does peanut allergen spread you know um if you're if you're shelling nuts you know it, it actually drops very very quickly and doesn't tend to tend to spread very um very very far and 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 the patients really once again we talked about ingestion really have to eat that but i, I think it's a really nice gesture i'll be honest with you i i think for for people um like the jays and other sporting um events to kind of tell our patients and our families they listen we understand we hear you you know we know that for many of you this is a very uncomfortable scenario so having these kinds of um, exceptions, I think is a really lovely uh, approach. But I do want to, you know, let people know, and my patients know that 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 is great, take advantage of it, if you're able to. But you can also go to a Jays game, and be very, very safe it, it, without having to sit in those sections or have to only go on those days. And, and I think that, for example, we often think about peanuts, but I think, listen, uh, I have I deal with patients with not more than just peanut allergy, tree nut allergy, milk allergy, sesame allergy, egg allergy, you know, shellfish allergy. And, and we often kind of focus on peanut as being the, the, the number one risk factor, um, you know, risk, um, risky food. Um, but so many of my patients have quite severe reactions to other foods and they have to navigate that without the same considerations that, that, that our patients mm-hmm. with get. So I think, look, it is, it's a lovely gesture. I, I really, you know, commend them for the understanding of this is a hard for our patients. But I want to make it clear that that is not medically necessary um, for to keep our patients safe. It, this makes me think I went to, we have the the Columbus Clippers where I live. So AAA affiliate. Um, and I went to a Clippers game with a bunch of uh, physicians, large group of us. And there were three children there who mm-hmm. all had peanut allergy. And I, I remember sitting there all sitting near me in a row and people were shelling peanuts near them. Sure. And uh, there was there was no concern. They did great. Yeah. Uh, and then um, the, it came up of uh, how none of the parents brought their epinephrine with them. And then they all looked at me and said, well, Dave's here. He's the allergist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, said, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> Well, see, that's more risky, spot. isn't it? I mean, that, that, that's far more yeah. risky, not, not having the epinephrine auto injectors. I mean, I think that, you know, that, that this is part of the navigation that we need for our, our families is to ensure that they are prepared and that, and that you know, they could attend a peanut, peanut free, nothing peanut, nothing peanut free, um, peanut free game, and they don't have their epinephrine auto injectors, then I think that that's, that, that's a far riskier behavior because we need that. And that's one of the risk mitigation strategies that we love to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we, we chatted about that a bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would. Well, That's a good teaching moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, many countries require very clear labeling on their packaged food products uh, if they contain common allergens mm-hmm. that you mentioned before, such as you know cow's milk or egg, peanut, et cetera. But more and more labels say things such as may contain or processed in a facility that also includes or shared equipment or, you know, there's 20 variations of this. How should people with food allergies interpret these precautionary labels? Now, that is a very loaded question, isn't it, Dave? I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'll say cover your butt, med- you know, um, packaging for so many, for so many um, co- companies, because 
may contain um, label. It's voluntary, you know, and so they can put that on any food that they want. And I think that that's what that's what we're seeing is that, you know, in the past, I may contain meant that it actually could contain. And now now we're seeing this just it's on, you know, I see coffee beans that may contain shellfish. And, um, you know, there's, you know, how many coffee beans have you seen that, that could have shrimp on? I mean, it's 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 just uh, I, I can't imagine I've ever seen anything like that before. So you see that, but then you see foods that are actually higher risk that don't have any labeling at all. And I, and I think this is where the challenge is. You know, the nice thing about it, in, you know, it, about labeling is that if it does have that food in there, it, it has to has to it has to claim that it does. So, for example, if milk is in the product, it has to say it has milk. If, it, if it's known to have it as part of an ingredient, the may contain I think is a real challenge. And and, uh, and I think that you know I love what 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 other con- countries are doing with with vital, which is a voluntary mm-hmm. initiative where they look at trace amounts and, and say, look, for this amount of food, we will put on a, a, a container, may contain label or whatever. But but for if it's if if the food only has less than a very, very small amount, which is not going to cause a reaction in nearly everybody, they don't have to have that label on there. And I think it does simplify things for for many of our families. For in many ways. I mean there there are some controversies about how to best do that, but but it does reduce the kind of well, now my kid can't eat anything because everything has a label on it. And, and I, you know, I mm-hmm. think that that's one of the challenges. You know, I, you have two loaves of bread in front of you. One of them says may contain, one of them says does not. The one that says does not could actually still contain, you know, and, and I think that this is, it just wasn't put on there. And I think that that's, that's our challenge. So it's, I, I think having some degree of standardization is important. Now, I also think about, we have to use a bit of common sense as well as, as patients, you know, and I think that once again, this is talking about risk stratification um, and there are higher risk foods and there are lower risk foods. And, and I think that, you know, some of our higher risk foods as not, not shocking, you know, um, chocolate bars, um, uh, ice creams are higher risk, baked goods. And we had a recent article mm-hmm. that we published that showed a very wide variety of um, peanut allergen in baked goods from a variety of bakeries that used peanuts. And, and some were incredibly small that would never cause a reaction in just about anybody, but also um, ones that would cause reactions to more than 50% of people. You know, And I think that so there's, there is some variation. So people do have to use some degree of judgment uh, in that. Granola bars, I mean, you know, anything from Costco. I mean, like, you know, Costco was snack up. I mean, like, you know, like how many Lara bars have I seen that have caused, you know, anaphylaxis or, or nut, nut butters that the kids have for the first time when they're when they're sitting in the in the buggy eating their food. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, um, I'm not trying to slam them, but I, but it'll, so many of those foods have, have these, these foods. So anyways, I, I think their families have to kind of really look into it. They have to use some degree of common sense. I have many families that will contact the manufacturer and say, like, well, is this a real risk or is it just something that you've put on it as a label? And and actually, most companies are major companies are willing to kind of have those discussions um, and can and then go from there. I think in the end, you know, I, I, it's a challenging thing. I have some families who feel better um, and navigate the world better by avoiding anything that says may contain. That's not wrong. You know, and I, and I think that that's, you know, if I were to tell Two families. I have one family that's that's very nervous. One family that's not. Neither of these are have wrong approaches. But one would say I would feel, I would have a worse quality of life avoiding everything that says may contain. The other family says I would have a worse quality of life not avoiding everything that may contain. And both mm-hmm. have a have a very reasonable perspective on this. You know, and I think they are dealing with what they can deal with to reduce risk, um, or, or and live as normal of a life as possible. And I don't think either approach is actually necessarily incorrect, you know? And so I, I think that these are discussions that we have to have. I think 
in the past, I, I was much more rigid. I'll be frank with you. I, you know, if it says may contain, you know, avoid, avoid, avoid. I think we have to have some discussions about what does that risk actually look like. Well, and to, I'm going to ask you an even more loaded question here yeah. in a second, but I do want to touch upon something you mentioned of, you know, who are we to tell anybody what to do? You know, it's yeah. our job to help guide them through totally. and to help understand risk. And then they make decisions that, you know, they feel best in, in their life, um, you know, implementing. So along those lines, what do we know about individual differences in the amount of a specific food that will cause any reaction or even mm. anaphylaxis? Does yeah. everybody with a particular food allergy have that same risk from eating trace amounts? And if not, how do we help people understand these differences? So yeah, now I we're mean, really getting into the weeds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like this is this is an evolving field, and and I think that the concept of thresholds. I mean, if you think about this, everybody, every patient that I see, have, will react to the food at a different level. Okay, so what I mean by that is, so say for example, just think about milligrams. If somebody has a milligram of a food. Um, a very small amount of that population will react to that that amount of food. And, it, you know, if you had 400 milligrams, you know, 50%. But so what, in, in context, what I mean by that is, so, you know, for peanut, about 85% of people can eat about a tenth of a peanut if they have a peanut allergy. I'm not saying go out and do that, okay? Um, and about 50% can eat about a half a peanut approximately. I mean, these are just kind of approximate numbers. Um but what that says to me is that every patient does have a different level of sensitivity and and that level of sensitivity can actually change you know and, and it can change based on the, the the vehicle or the foods in it can depend on the health of the patient um at the time and, and so you know this this concept of thresholds you know if one percent of the population will react at this level 50 percent will react at this level what is a reasonable level etc is there a reasonable level and i think these are discussions that once again we would never have had these discussions 10 years mm -hmm. ago. Um, and I think this is going to start shaping our policy, for example, our, our precautionary food labeling. Um, and But I think it's also important for our families to understand that. You know, I, I think that if you, if I talk to families and say, you know, what, 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 how much do you think it would take to cause your child to react? You know, many will think that even like a light dusting of a peanut, you know, um, on a, in something would cause it for the almost, nobody it would cause that cause a reaction almost all patients could do that i'm not saying go out and eat all these kinds of foods mm -hmm. but the threshold is much higher i think than most people would think like i said would anybody estimate that 50 percent of patients can tolerate approximately half a peanut i mean that that's 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 far more than than i think the perception is out there like i said not endorsing trying that and but but there are people who do this i mean so what we will do is we'll do a threshold challenge we'll say listen come into my office we're going to do a single dose um threshold challenge and see kind of, you know, you can stratify what is your child's threshold. And now, once again, I have to use that with a bit of a grain of caution because those thresholds can change. They can change if they have, you know, asthma or asthma that's not controlled, if there's an illness, even alcohol use, sleep deprivation. I mean, all these things can change your level of reactivity, even day to day or even year to year. Um, but I think it's an important concept to understand that, 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 that it's actually typically more than most people think. And, and I think that that's um, for better or worse, um, that, that's kind of where we are. 
Right. And then it's not just in isolation either. So you pair that knowledge with, you mm -hmm. say, you, they think that their child's going to have a severe reaction from a dusting and you can mm -hmm. demonstrate to them, they can eat a whole peanut and nothing happens. It doesn't mean right. they're not allergic. It doesn't mean nope. they should go eat as much as they want, but then that informs their decision-making regarding very low risk propositions, such yep. as shared equipment labels processed in the same facility, um, you know, even commercial grade peanut oil, things like that. So that combination, I agree with you, can really help and in, offer information uh, mm -hmm. so that then they can, you know, decide how they want to proceed from there. So I think this yep. is where we're evolving to, but it does take a lot of time in the office. And well, that's speaking right. of which, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts just on the value of oral food challenges overall. Oh man, when, this oh. is, <laughs> I love I know, it. This is, I, this is, this my is your baby. Yeah, it is, I love it. I yeah, mean, so honestly, when, Dave, when are they helpful? When, when should we do them? I think, listen, Dave, honestly, food challenges, when I first started doing this, I would do probably one a day, you know, and, or if that, you know, and, and, to the point where we would, you know, pre-COVID, we're doing up to 12 food challenges a day in our office, you know, and I think that this is because we, the value, the importance of a food challenge, I can, I, I don't think we can underestimate how important a food challenge is. It is our gold standard, okay? And I think this tells, we can use this for food introduction if parents are concerned. It helps to clarify a diagnosis if there's been false positive testing. It helps us to decide whether a child is, potentially outgrowing a food allergy. And so to me, food challenges are oral food challenges where a patient comes into my office and we start with a very, very small amount and we gradually increase it, have become the absolute cornerstone of what we do, um, especially even if we're considering therapies. We want to be, you know, if I'm going to treat somebody, I've got to be darn sure that I know that they're actually allergic to it. So, you know, these are, these are, these are very, very important and they're very, very safe. Um, they take a lot of time from our perspective, a lot of energy, and and they're actually can be quite nerve wracking for families. I mean, I think that there's there, and you know, even for me, when I would when I would do my first couple, you know, my first half a year, a year of doing them, I was I was very nervous to do this. I'll be hundred percent honest with you. I'm sure you were as well. Um, but 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 I think that families can be reassured. We absolutely see reactions. There's no question. We want to reduce the risk by ensuring that their kids are healthy, that they're, if they have asthma, we actually have a mandate in our office that if they have asthma, they're on puffers beforehand just to kind of reduce that risk. Not everybody does that, but that's kind of what we do. Um, if there's any concerns, we, we, we just, you know, wouldn't, won't do it. Um, but at the same time, um, reactions can occur. We try to reduce that risk. Um, but in general, they're actually quite mild. And, and I think, you know, that doesn't mean that severe reaction. I've absolutely seen severe reactions, you know, in, in my clinic and we've had to deal with them. No question. Um, but, you know, thankfully, um, the probability of, of having a, a severe or, or, or even life threatening reaction is, is very, very uncommon. And, and in fact, you know, to my knowledge, in, in, in you know, 50 years of, of having oral food challenges, um, there have been two fatalities, you know, and I, we don't know all the circumstances behind those. But in but those are those are very very uncommon and very very unlikely, especially given the frequency of of these and, and kind of how commonly they're being performed around the world. So you know I have to tell families, listen, these are very very safe. They are so absolutely important. And you know I, I there are some doctors who won't do them. I mean, uh, but I for so many reasons. But I you know I I think to be frank with you, you're missing out on on a very valuable learning opportunity for our, our patients. And and actually you know it's interesting. You know, what we like to do is if a family does have, if a patient does react during a food challenge, um, it's actually a good learning experience for families as well. You know, we'll have them, you know, I tend to have the patient, if they're old enough um, or the or the family, in fact, if they react and need to use epinephrine, they get to do the epinephrine. And that's a very valuable learning tool, to be honest with you, for our, for our patients. Um, and 
you know, regardless of whether there's a pass or a fail, you know, I almost don't use pass or fail, you know, success or not, or whatever, you know, there's actually an improvement in quality of life, um, whether there's a, a reaction or not a reaction. And I think that that's been well documented in the literature where that even if a patient reacts, we still can see an improvement in quality of life because now the family knows and they can see how much the kid reacted to and they can also see how well epinephrine works because like it works really well <laughs> like I, I you know when you see that that kid in in three minutes has gone from wheezing and hives to looking like a totally normal kid i mean it's it's an amazing teaching and families will commonly say wow i just cannot believe how well it worked so overall i i, I could i could probably maybe that's my second billboard dave i mean i i think you know you know consider <laughs> food challenges because i think it is such an important part of what we do and i think this is a trend i hope that our listeners um we'll see over the next year is that this is becoming more and more common and done more frequently. Um, in the past, like I said, it was kind of a, if I have to, uh, I'll do it now. I, now it's kind of a must for us to be frank with you. Mm -hmm. oh, I, I appreciate your perspective. I share the same thoughts and, you know, at, at our institution, we did over 900 food challenges last year. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it, it's a valuable experience. We do the same thing. If treatment is necessary, we have that. We walk the parents through it. Mm -hmm. They do great. They always thank us afterwards for, yeah. for that knowledge and, and knowing that they can do it and seeing how fast it works. Do you need to see completely negative allergy test results before you consider a challenge in somebody? Not a chance. Once again, we talked about the fact that these are probably the skin test, the blood test. These are probability tests. They, you know, when I do a blood test or a skin test, it's not to talk me out of doing a food challenge. It's to, it's to help me to stratify the probability of reaction. And that is it, you know, and I think that that is, um, we have kids who have had extremely large skin tests and extremely high blood work levels that have just sailed through and they've done great. And, and, and I, and I, and, you know, the look of amazement on, on, on my face, I mean, not even my face, the parents' faces. And, and like we've had parents, you know, in tears, you know, they've lived, you know, their entire life, you know, as a teenager, food, skin positive skin tests for all these foods have been avoiding for, and then you do the food challenge and, and they actually have no allergies, you know, at the tears that you see, you know, in those, in those parents' eyes, it's, it's, it's actually, to be frank with you, it's so gratifying. I, I, it's one of my favorite parts of my job. I have to be honest with you. When we kind of delabel these families, these kids get rid of those allergies um, and, 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 uh, and just make a proper diagnosis. And like I said, I've seen a lot of a lot of tears and, and a lot of appreciation. That's fantastic. Uh, you, you've published some really interesting experiences surrounding um, at-home food challenges mm. or using like virtual monitoring and things like that. So, yeah. uh, are there you now? Now we're really getting into the nuance of this. Are there <laughs> low-risk challenges that can be safely performed at home, and sure. how do you triage those? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the when we kind of looked at this, it was. was um, looking initially at um, patients that were potentially at risk for developing peanut allergy. Um, but what mm. we did is we had them um, introduce it early at home in our infants and we kind of supported our families. Uh, you know, early introduction of foods is so key. And, and so, but I once again think that sometimes families will want to do that in office and great, absolutely. We simply don't have the resources, especially during COVID, we didn't have the opportunity um, to, to have every single kid do that in a medically supervised setting and, and it's not necessary. Um, but that's a that's a great example of a low risk challenge. Patients, for example, that have negative blood work or negative skin, or even low blood work or skin testing have never eaten it. You know, I often tell families, if, if that skin test hadn't been performed, what would you have done? 
you probably would have introduced that food. And so, you know, when we have reassuring blood work, reassuring skin testing, there's never been a history of reaction. If a family's game, they're prepared. We often walk them through, you know, can you do this at home, um, et cetera. And I think that, like I said, if you haven't, if, you, if we hadn't tested, what would you have done? And I, and I think that that's, that's kind of a concept that I, that I try to roll around in, 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 in my head. Um, we're looking at F-Pies, which, which is kind of a, a, a more interesting kind of food allergy where there's kind of a delayed onset of vomiting. I'm not going to get into that, but but that's another where that we're kind of looking at, can they do these safely at home? And, and I think that the mm -hmm. answer is, is yes. You know, so these are, there are some very low risk challenges, baked products for many of our families um, who have resolving milk or egg allergy. Many of these families will will consider that. I don't recommend it for everybody. Once again, you need to talk to your doctor about when this is, 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 is uh, is a, um, a reasonable approach, but for so many of our families, just getting those low risk foods in, um, you know, shellfish allergy in an infant, shellfish in an infant or tomatoes, or you know, these are very, very low risk foods, just get them in, you know, tree nuts, same story if you haven't had a reaction, I, I often recommend that as well. And that's commonly seen in, in patients with peanut allergy. Parents often say, should I introduce tree nuts? And my answer is, is yes, you know, get, get those in sooner rather than later, do it cautiously, do small amounts, et cetera. But getting those in at home, I, I think is, is, is um, a resource sparing uh, approach um, that I think is actually has long-term gains. So for sure. Dr. Mack, this has been a, an extremely enlightening conversation. You've already provided just a wealth of information for us to consider during Food Allergy Awareness Week. If you're up for it, I'd like to finish with some rapid fire questions. Yeah, Does sure. that sound okay to you? Yeah, I love it. All right, here we go. First one, do you recommend first generation antihistamines such as diphenhydramine or Benadryl or second generation antihistamines such as cetirizine or Zyrtec for treatment of hives or skin rashes associated with food allergy reactions? Uh, no Benadryl. Let's just be clear. And we actually have a <laughs> statement on this. Like that, actually, that I put that in my presentations. I often put that as a slide as well, with a big, you know, red um, circle around it with an X across it. No Benadryl. The the reality is, it's not a great antihistamine. It, it has a slow degree of onset, has high side effect profile, um, and, and so cetirizine or other antihistamines that are long acting. Um, second generation are far safer, far more effective. I don't even, I actually can't think of the last patient I ever recommended Benadryl. Good. Love it. So we need you, we need a billboard. We need yeah. uh, a blimp. We need yeah. uh skywriting. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll get you whatever we can. <laughs> All right. You're up for number two. Yeah, sure. Okay. Is coconut a fruit or a nut? Oh, Dave, this, yeah, this is, this is going to be. I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm not done. Okay, okay. Do people with tree nut allergies need to avoid coconut right off the bat? Blanket statement. That okay. That is an easy one. Answer is no. Okay. The reality is, if it, 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 coconut is is a is probably what we call a droop, which is you can look that up. D R U P E. Um, like many of our actual you know suspected tree nuts, like almonds and etc. These are actually droops, not not actually tree nuts specifically. However. Um, the USDA, I believe, uh, you guys have that in the States, um, it does classify it as a tree nut. Okay. What I will say to you is regardless of what we, how we classify this, um, the reality is if people have a nut allergy, almost every patient can tolerate coconut. I only have a very few patients who can, who have a true coconut allergy. It's very, very uncommon. And so it is fully unnecessary for the vast majority of patients to ever consider avoiding. And we would never, I, I would never test for that, you know, in, in this scenario. So mm -hmm. yeah, great question. Eat it, uh, enjoy it. Pina coladas <laughs> for our adult patients over the age of 21 only. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> You're the first person to call me a name during the recording. I can't believe you called me a droop. That's very rude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If uh, if somebody, all right, next question, if you're ready. Yeah. Uh, if somebody may, may have, may have, not sure, may have eaten their allergen accidentally, but they don't have any symptoms at all, should they treat themselves with epinephrine and run to the emergency room? I don't recommend it. I mean, I think for so many reasons, um, epinephrine absolutely is totally safe. It's our first line treatment when it comes to allergic reactions, no question. Um, but it's un medically unnecessary if the patient is not having having symptoms at that time. You know, and I think that that's an important thing to kind of really um, get through. In fact, in, if they have eaten, maybe maybe they've outgrown it. You know, uh, maybe their threshold is much much higher than than um, the amount that they ate, or maybe it wasn't actually in there in the first place. So I think that these are these are it's it's actually quite instructive. If someone says to me, "I ate a peanut," you know, he ate the whole peanut, uh, you know, chocolate bar, and and was fine. I think, well, I don't think well, you should have used your epinephrine. I think well, maybe he's not allergic anymore. You know, and, and so that's, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it's actually diagnostically very, very helpful. I'm not saying don't, you know, have your epinephrine ready. You'll be, if you, if you have it ready for sure. But the reality is if there's no symptoms, I would recommend just observing for most of our patients. Is there a possibility that the epinephrine would actually wear off before an allergic reaction actually even started? It's, it's, it, it's a good question, Dave. I, I, it's, it does actually have a, a, a relatively short period and over an hour or so of peak, peak effect. Um, but in general, most reactions are going to happen very, very quickly within 15 minutes to 30 minutes. So the reality is you're going to cover that in that time. So in general, I think you're mm -hmm. I hear from so many parents when, you know, I talk about early introduction, they say, well, we haven't given strawberries yet because we know that they're a major cause of allergy. Yeah. I don't know if you hear this in Canada, but oh my gosh, it, I mean, it's, it, I don't even know where this started from, yeah. but set the record straight for us, Dr. Mack, are, are strawberries a common cause of, of allergy and do parents need to worry before feeding it to their babies? I've never seen a strawberry. We focus primarily on food allergy and I have never seen a strawberry allergy. I actually don't know any clinician that I'm aware of that has actually seen a true strawberry allergy. I mean, it can happen, no question. You can react to anything, but strawberries are quite can quite commonly cause rashes in children. They can cause a histamine release. They can cause an irritant response, a contact irritant. Absolutely, I see that all the time, but I have never seen a true strawberry allergy. So we'll set the record straight. It is not a major allergen. Introduce strawberries, they are delicious um, and, and your child will not have a reaction. All right. Last question along those lines. Can artificial food colorings cause true allergic reactions? Uh, no. I mean, I think that they're the only kind of non-artificial one I've seen is for carmine, which is a very uncommon type of naturally organic food coloring. But for artificial, uh, it's, it's, it's just about impossible for that to actually occur. You have to be able to form an antibody and, and we just can't do that to, to those artificial colorings. Oh, this this is a fantastic way to end the conversation. Thank you so much. And I'd like to finish with a prediction. So if you could dust off your crystal ball and look 10 years into the future, mm -hmm. what conversations are we going to be having then that we are not having now? I think we're going to have much more precision as to what we do. So this will be, I think, a more precision-based medicine where we can say, okay, you know, we have some diagnostic tests that are coming that look fantastic. We have, um, you know, some treatments that are coming down the road. I, I think that there will be much more, you know, if you see the patient and you can make a decision based on that stratifying risk for them more accurately, and, and that's going to be part of our discussion, um, not just this kind of blanket avoid, which once again, it's already shifting. Um, active introduction of foods. I think this is something that we may actually see that patients are not told to avoid, you know, this is just my own kind of event, but, but you know, 
avoidance is, is maybe not the best answer for some of our patients, you know, and, and I think that active introduction or active reintroduction may be something we kind of look at. Um, we're going to see more um, food ladders where you start to kind of introduce less allergenic forms, um, immunotherapies like OIT, sublingual immunotherapy, patch um, immunotherapy. So these are, I think, uh, my feeling is we are moving towards more active treatment. And I, and I love this. I love where we are because, you know, when I we got into this, um, we didn't have a lot of options for our families. We kind of, it was really like, we were kind of one trick ponies uh, where we kind of said, yeah, this is what you have. And we kind of provide counseling on this. And we often would see them in a year or six months or two years or whatever, you know, however you could do it. But we have some, we have way better ideas as to kind of what is the individual patient looking like and what are our options for them um, beyond simply just avoid, here's your epinephrine auto injector and, and we'll see you later. You know, I, I think that that's, I love it. I'm so excited about where we're going and, and I, I think our patients should be as well. Oh, I hope that all of our listeners really, you know, appreciate the passion that you bring to this. Um, I know many others share your, your same passion and your, your message of hope. I mean, this has been a very positive conversation. Mm -hmm. um, we're not telling people to, to run and hide and, and you mm -hmm. can never leave your house. And, uh, and with your prediction, and I, I agree, and I hope that it comes true, of it's going to get even better and better and better. So for everybody out there listening, you know, whatever you may have heard five, 10 years ago, uh, there may be a new approach to you. And along those lines, the last question that I have for you is that I'm sure that our conversation today absolutely presented information that may be mm -hmm. very different from what some parents or patients have been told or even advice from some of our mm -hmm. colleagues that they may offer. So what advice do you have for everybody listening regarding how best to stay current with all of the evolving evidence and approaches surrounding food allergies? I think that, well, first off, doing your own research. I mean, like there is a lot of unfortunate, uh, uh, poor research on the internet, but the Quad AI, the American College, the, you know, other Canadian society, we have some great resources that are available out there. And I think that they can provide some great, um, at least motivation for our families. And, and I think that's been, that's, we try to stay as evidence-based as possible. Once again, it, it will continue to change, but then having a good relationship with a, with an allergist, um, that, that, is consistent with 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 the, with current practice, and, and I think that having those discussions, finding out which um, approaches are good for you, and, and kind of what does that literature look like, and I think, you know, the reality is not. It becomes a bit tricky, right, when you're talking to about you know, your our colleagues, etc. Um, and and I think we're all going to have different approaches to this, different resources, different kind of understandings. None of us have the the answer on how to do this, but being able to at least have those discussions and say, you know, for you, these are some of your options, um, and having those discussions, I, I think if if you're not don't want to do that, that's kind of a red flag. But staying up to date, not neglecting to see your allergist on a regular basis. Um, to kind of get that information. And, and um, I think that that's, that's key. Uh, do you mind, or, you know, you mentioned a couple of times to be aware of misinformation. Are you, are you active on social media or where can people find you yeah. if, if you'd like yeah. to share your handle? Absolutely. We're at, at, I'm at, at uh, Dr. Doug Mac uh, MD um, for on my Twitter handle. Um, we are expanding our social media presence through our, um, our clinic, uh, Halt and Pediatric Allergy. Uh, dot com. So these are we're we're working on that. It's uh, how much can we do? But yes, I, I I love social media. I love putting the putting the facts out there, and and um, and once again, those facts may change with time. So, <laughs> Doctor Mac, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. I, I thought this was a, a very enlightening and valuable conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will will agree. Uh, any last words before we depart? Yeah, no panel tests, no Benadryl, and, and the food challenge is golden. Yeah, those are my three. 
Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.